Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Zechariah chapter 1. The book of Zechariah, like the book of Haggai, is an interesting book in that it takes place basically inside the storyline of the book of Ezra. Haggai and Zechariah were prophets who worked in the time of Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, as part of the leadership team associated with the first major wave of returnees after the exile in the 6th century BC. So in Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, it says, now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them, closed quote. Now, if you want a longer introduction to the history of that time period and all the events that led up to the exile and the various events that led up to the edict by Cyrus, king of Persia, authorizing the return of the Jewish people to the land so as to live and worship there and rebuild the temple of God, go and listen to the End of the Word episode on Ezra chapter 1 or the End of the Word episode on Haggai chapter 1. In both of those places, I tell the story in greater detail. It's the exact same background that you're going to need in order to engage here with the prophet Zechariah. But having told that story twice already, I thought we could save a little bit of time here just by referring you back to those previous episodes. Here's the short version. In a series of defeats and deportations in the late 7th century and early 6th century BC at the hand of the Babylonians, the Jewish people were punished by God and consigned to an extended time out, we might say, away from their land and away from the temple, which was torn down and desecrated in 586 BC. The prophet Jeremiah predicted that this time out, this exile, would last 70 years. Then, in 539 BC, the Persians defeated Babylon and assumed their empire, adding it to their own. The Persian king Cyrus issued an edict in 538 BC permitting the Jews to return to the land and rebuild the temple and to dwell there as his subject people. Thus, in 538 BC, the first major wave of Jewish returnees set out under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Jeshua, whose name is sometimes spelled as Joshua, as it is in Haggai and Zechariah. This group made a start on the temple project and even had a little ceremony when they cleared the temple floor and rededicated the altar. However, due to intense local opposition and bureaucratic confusion within the empire, the project stalled for almost 20 years. Then God raised up Haggai and Zechariah, who relit the fires, as it were, and encouraged the people to press through the opposition they were facing and to recommit to the temple building project. The people responded, and the work was completed, and the temple was rededicated in 516 BC, which was, as you've probably already guessed if you're good at math, precisely 70 years after the temple was destroyed in 586 BC. 
So that's the part of the story we're engaging when we read Haggai and Zechariah. Zechariah began his ministry two months after Haggai, but he continued long after. Now, if you've listened to the series on Haggai, you'll recall that Haggai delivered all of his oracles over a four-month stretch beginning on August 29th, 520 BC, and ending on December 18th, 520 BC. And then we never hear another word from him. We believe that Haggai was a very old man when he delivered those oracles, and so the assumption is that he said what God had told him to say, and then he retired, or maybe even died. We don't know. Zechariah, on the other hand, seems to have been a much younger man when he began his prophetic ministry, so he overlaps with Haggai, and then he carries on a great many years afterward. In fact, Zechariah appears to have been alive and functioning as the head of his priestly family in the time of Nehemiah, a whole generation later. So he must have been considerably younger than the prophet Haggai. We also know that he was a priest. I just mentioned that he was the head of his priestly family in the time of Nehemiah. We find that information in Nehemiah chapter 12, verses 10 to 16. He succeeded his grandfather Edo in that role, which we presume indicates that his father, Berechiah, died relatively young. A prophet who is also a priest is not all that unusual, actually, in the Old Testament. Ezekiel, of course, uh, was a priest and a prophet, as was Jeremiah. Haggai might also have been a priest. We aren't 100% sure about that, but many scholars believe that he was. Regardless, Zechariah was a priest. He was born in Babylon, and his name means Yahweh remembers. Now, the only other bit of biographical information we have about Zechariah is disputed. So I suppose you can take this one or leave it. It is possible that Zechariah was the last prophet to have been murdered in the Old Testament. In Matthew 23, 34 to 35, Jesus says, Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar, close quote. Now, some people say that the Zechariah mentioned there is the Zechariah whose murder is recorded in 2 Chronicles 24, 20-22, but that Zechariah is said to be the son of Jehoiada. This Zechariah, the one who authored the book of Zechariah, is the son of Berechiah, but there is no mention in this book of him being murdered between the sanctuary and the altar, so, as I said, scholarly opinion is divided on this issue. Certainly, we can't fault Zechariah for failing to narrate his own murder. That would have been very difficult for him to have done. So it is entirely possible, and even likely, I would argue, that Jesus was talking about something that happened after Zechariah finished writing this book. Or it is possible that the Zechariah in Second Chronicles is being referred to by a different ancestor there than Jesus makes reference to in Matthew 23. As I said, we can't be 100% sure. In terms of style... Zechariah is very different than Haggai, even though they address many of the same concerns and issues. Uh, Joyce Baldwin, for example, says here, there is a marked contrast between Haggai and his contemporary Zechariah. If Haggai was the builder responsible for the solid structure of the new temple, Zechariah was more like the artist, adding colorful windows with their symbolism 
gaiety, and light, closed quote. Let's just pause and unpack that a little bit. The book of Zechariah does feature a number of very colorful symbolic images. There are eight night visions in the early part of the book, and they are often characterized as a form of apocalyptic literature. The word apocalyptic literally means revelatory. So it refers to images or symbols that reveal, but the key is how they reveal. Anthony Pedersen provides a very succinct definition here. He says, apocalyptic literature paints striking pictures with words, closed quote. So that's what we're dealing with here. Striking pictures painted with words. Now, you, you never could paint these pictures with actual paint. Uh, some of them are otherworldly and bizarre, but these visions do convey a message and a feeling and a sense of hope and expectation. And we'll get into some of those visions shortly. The structure of the book is relatively straightforward. There's a brief call to repentance, followed by three distinct blocks of material. A series of night visions running from 1-7 through 6-15, followed by a series of oracles concerned with fasting and right religious practice in 7-1 through 8-23, and then ending with a series of eschatological writings beginning in chapter 9, verse 1, and carrying on through to the end of chapter 14. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. All right, let's begin with the date that is provided there for us in verse 1. Mark Bodas is here. The date given in Zechariah 1.1 interlinks the two books by placing the date prior to Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 to 23. This reveals that Zechariah's call to ethical repentance came prior to the promises delivered by Haggai at the temple foundation laying. It is a subtle reminder that repentance was always as important as temple building as a sign of obedience, close quote. I think it's very important for us to see. Again, you need to read these books side by side to get the total picture. Zechariah begins prophesying two months after Haggai. So if you're a note taker, you could put the date August 29th, 520 BC, beside Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. If you have margins in your Bible, I suggest you do that. It'll help you keep these letters straight. Then you could put the date October slash November 520 BC beside Zechariah 1.1. Now, we don't have a day reference for the opening of this book, so that's why we're not quite as precise here. We just know that it was in the eighth Jewish month, which corresponds to our October-November. 
So this paragraph that we just read fits in between the first and second paragraphs of Haggai chapter 2, right before verse 10. If you're going to try and arrange these things chronologically and do some cutting and pasting with your Bible, which, by the way, is probably not good to do, but you could cut and paste these oracles to line them up chronologically, snipping this one out and putting it right there between Haggai 2 verse 9 and Haggai 2 verse 10. Now, notice also that Zechariah, like Haggai, dates his oracles by reference to a pagan king. That is massively significant. Walter Rose says here, this is a painful moment in the book. Every dating formula in Zechariah is a reminder of the fact that there is no king in Jerusalem. Closed quote. So normally you would want to date an event by reference to a Jewish king if you were a Jewish prophet. So go and read Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1, for example. That's how you want to do it. But to date by a Persian king is an admission that things are not now the way you would want them to be. It'd be like if I referred to something that happened in 2020 as having happened in 1 PCE, or year one in the post-Christian era. That would be very jarring, right? You, you would understand that I'm making a point. And so it is here. That's, that's how this would have sounded. To date events by reference to a pagan king as opposed to a Jewish king is to acknowledge that in some significant sense, the entire covenant project has gone off the rails. The house of David is a ruin. The kingdom of God has not come to pass as we hoped it would do. So this is an important moment, and it signals an important shift in the timeline of redemption. Israel was a church and a nation for much of its history, but now it is a church inside a nation, a pagan nation, a hostile nation, an indifferent nation. And it will be like this now for quite some time. But Zechariah, far from being discouraged, looks forward and he sees a much bigger and better plan unfolding, which we'll begin to get into in the series of nighttime visions. Now, as for the opening message itself, contained in verses 2 to 6, the meaning is fairly straightforward. Zechariah has God saying, Are you going to be like your ancestors? I called on them to repent and they refused. They ignored my word. But here's the thing. My word can't be ignored. My word caught up to them, and it resulted in the destruction of their city, the destruction of this temple, and their being sent into exile. Is that what you want? Well, if not, then repent. Return to me, and I will return to you. That's the basic message. Returning to the land is one thing, but God says, I want more than that. I want you to return to me. That's the real issue here. Now, in verse 7, we have the first of a series of eight night visions. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edu, saying. Now, let's just pause here for a second, because again, as I mentioned, the dates in this book are really important. The 24th day of the 11th month in the second year of Darius would be February 15th, 519 BC, about three months after the call to repentance recorded in verses 1 to 6. About two months after the last recorded oracle from Haggai, and about five months after the work resumed in earnest on the temple. This date is generally assumed to apply to all of the eight nighttime visions. So this was obviously a very busy and tumultuous night. 
Let's try and imagine what must have been going on and what sorts of questions must have been hanging in the air at that time and at this moment in the story. The prophet Haggai has burst onto the scene, seemingly out of nowhere, and has engaged in a four-month-long truth bomb campaign that has rocked the covenant community to its core. He told the people that God had been frustrating all their efforts on the home front and that he would continue to do so until they resumed work on the temple. The temple was the symbol of God's presence in their midst, and every day they neglected the temple was a day they were saying that they could do life They could rebuild their homes, their culture, and their country without reference to God. So, no, God was not going to allow that to happen. They were going to learn to place God at the center, or he would turn on them and make himself their enemy until they did. So they took that message to heart. They resumed the work, and they made some very encouraging progress. But the results, at the end of the day, were small. The difficulties were many. And as yet, there had been no obvious indication of God's favor and blessing upon them. And the peace of the wider world actually seemed to contradict some of the things that Haggai the prophet had said. He said, or or rather he reported God as having said, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. Haggai 2, 21-22. Haggai had predicted chaos and upheaval, a great shake in the wider world, out of which would begin to emerge the messianic kingdom. But now, it seemed as though the entire world was at peace. Nothing was shaking, no, no chaos, no upheaval. You see, peace is only a good thing if you like the world the way it is. But if there is injustice, if there is corruption, if there is tyranny, brutality, and evil running wild in the world, then you don't want peace. You want war. You want revolution. You want upheaval. But that isn't what was happening. Contrary to all expectation, the world was at peace. Things were actually settling down. So what gives? Did God lie? Did did he fail? Did they fail? What, What in the world was going on? Those are the sorts of questions that are hanging in the air like a dark cloud on the night that Zechariah has this series of visions. Let's get into them now. The first one begins in verse 8. I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, How long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little They furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy, 
My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem, closed quote. As I mentioned above, the eight nighttime visions are generally considered apocalyptic in nature. The Expositor's Bible Commentary is very helpful here. It says, the prophetic visions or dream visions of 1, 7 through 6, 8 are apocalyptic, and then in brackets, revelatory, literature, which may be defined as symbolic, visionary, prophetic literature composed during oppressive conditions consisting of visions whose events are recorded exactly as they were seen by the author and explained through a divine interpreter and whose theological content is primarily eschatological, closed quote. All right, so as I mentioned, the word apocalyptic literally means revelatory. So this is a special way of revealing important truths. Apocalyptic is sometimes referred to as crisis, as a crisis genre, okay? So this is a, a genre, a way of revealing truths that seems to be very common during times of crisis or when it is looking or perceiving a time of crisis. In these apocalyptic visions, God pulls back the curtain, as it were, so that Zechariah can see what is really going on behind, or maybe better to say, above the events that he is experiencing down at ground level. Apocalyptic visions help answer the question, what is really going on? How is God at work in history? Who is directing events? And toward what ultimate end? Now, in terms of this first night vision, Zechariah sees a man riding on a sorrel horse. Some versions have that as a red horse or a chestnut horse, so reddish brown of some kind. Behind him are some other horses, presumably with riders on them as well. Horses at this time were mainly used for carrying scouts and messengers. The Persian Empire was vast, and it required an extensive network of messengers and outposts to facilitate communication. Darius ruled the known world by means of men on horseback, carrying orders and bringing reports. That imagery is being co-opted here to communicate a very important message to Zechariah. God is in control. He is sending out agents. He is receiving reports. He is in the know. Now, that's a very encouraging message when it feels like things aren't going the way that they're supposed to go. If you know that God knows then you can be patient. And that's the intended effect of the first vision. Comforting or not, though, the people have some questions. And so one of the angels asks a very important question, seemingly out of sympathy with the concerns of the post-exilic community. We have that question in verse 12. O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? Again, the prophet had declared upheaval. He promised a big shakeup. But if that shakeup hasn't come, does that imply a lessening of God's interest in the situation in Jerusalem? Should we read this delay as an indication of disinterest? That's the substance of the question. In response to the question, God speaks words of comfort and grace to the mediating angel. The angel passes them on to Zechariah and tells him to pass them on to the people. We see that in verse 14. He says, cry out. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. The essence of this message is that God still cares for the covenant people, and he still cares for Jerusalem and Zion. He is jealous for them, meaning he has a special affection for them, like a husband has a special affection for his wife. And he is angry with the nations that have troubled Israel. Even though God ordained and arranged for them to do so, he ordained punishment, but they exceeded their commission. They were cruel and harsh in ways they didn't need to be. And from that, we learn a lesson. God cares about the what, and he also cares about the how. If you do the right thing the wrong way, you will have to answer to him for that. And rest assured, the angel says, those nations will answer for everything they did above and beyond their divine commission. As for you, my favor has returned to you. I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy, God says. He promises to empower their rebuilding efforts, and he promises that the region, not just the city, will be rebuilt, and the people again will enjoy prosperity. That's the gist of the first vision. The second vision is recorded for us in verses 18 to 21. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, What are these coming to do? And he said, These are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations, who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. The essence of this vision is fairly straightforward, but some of the details are disputed. The basic idea is that God has ordained and provided for the punishment of all the nations that have terrorized and brutalized the people of Israel. The horns represent the hostile powers, and the craftsmen or blacksmiths, as some translations have it, represent the agents of God's punishing providence. God will punish those who have terrorized you. That's the basic message in this little vision. Now, as to some of the fine details, some say that the four horns means that there are four particular powers in mind. Some say Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. The same four powers referred to in the various visions in the book of Daniel. Others suggest Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia, working from the past and moving up to the present in terms of the oracle itself or the vision itself. And there are probably other identifications out there in addition to these. However, many, I think we could even say most, understand the four here to simply indicate comprehensiveness, like how we use the expression from the four corners of the earth to mean from everywhere in the earth. So, four horns would refer to all the nations, past and present, past, present, and even future, we might say, that oppress and terrorize the people of God. Whoever opposes God's people will himself be opposed by powerful agents of God's providence. He knows how to pull apart, he knows how to cast down, he knows how to punish, and he knows 
how to repay, thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.